Red Salute. Welcome to the Manifestering Podcast. If you want to support this project, which allows me more time to produce and release content, you can do so on my website, manifesteringpodcast.com. There's a link to my Patreon, as well as a donation button that allows you to just donate through the site itself. You can also do so on my anchor.fm page. Just search for Manifestering Podcast. Thanks so much for helping me keep revolutionary media alive. Question three. How did the superstructure change from feudal and capitalist to socialist from 1949 to 1978? And how important was the Cultural Revolution to this change? Since exploitation exists both in feudal and capitalist society, there has to be a political structure that supports the exploitation and a corresponding cultural and value system that justifies it. China had a very long history of feudalism, and thus feudal ideology ran deep, dominating how people thought and behaved. Even today, remnants of feudal ideology remain. The 1949 revolution turned Chinese society upside down and shook feudal ideology to its core. Land reform followed by the collectivization of agriculture not only destroyed the feudal economic base, it also fundamentally challenged the feudal ideology that justified a very privileged few forcibly taking the fruits of other people's labor. It also challenged the oppressive, patriarchal, feudal culture, which rigidly assigned each person's place in the society according to a predetermined order. As stated in question 2a, as the state took over the industrial enterprises, it aimed to change the relations of production by phasing out commodity production and labor power as a commodity. Workers in state enterprises received wages and benefits directly from the state. While industrial workers in capitalist countries had to fight hard for the eight-hour workday and for any increase in wages and improvement in working conditions, workers in state enterprises received them right away from the new government. In a society with such a long feudal past, the relationship between the workers and the Communist Party of China could not help but still have remnants of feudal ideology. Since workers and state enterprises all receive the above-mentioned rights and benefits, they, like other recipients of benevolent endowments, were relatively content and passive. They were grateful to the party and state for what they received and believed that working hard to build their country was in part a way to show their gratitude. This was especially true for older workers who could compare the incredible differences between factory work before and after liberation. Worker gratitude toward the party and state extended to the cadres in charge of factory management, the overwhelming majority of whom, especially those at higher levels, were Communist Party members. Revolutionizing Industrial Organization As stated earlier, one of the basic changes in the relations of production and state-owned industrial enterprises to phase out labor power as a commodity would not have been possible had there not been a fundamental change in the relationship between the cadres and the workers in the factories. Throughout China's long history of feudalism, government officials always had absolute authority. This old and outdated ideology had staying power in the new society and could easily be manipulated by authority to reassert control. 
After the transfer of ownership, the cadres, who represented the state, had a lot of power and authority, and workers often did not question or challenge them. The new cadres were certainly different from the old managers before liberation. They, in many ways, went out of their way to look after the workers' interests. However, despite the fact that workers, like peasants and other sectors of the masses, participated in the mass movements led by the Communist Party of China during the 1950s and early 1960s, their class consciousness was not fully developed. Workers were not aware that changes in the relations of production were not guaranteed after the judicial transfer of ownership to the state, nor were they aware that political struggle continued at the highest levels within the party, the outcome of which would determine the direction of the transition. Although it is true that even before the Cultural Revolution, democracy in the workplace went far beyond that of factories in the West, because of permanent employment status guaranteed workers their places in the factories, before the Cultural Revolution, workers did not seriously question or challenge the cadre's authority in the factories. As industrial production increased and the number of industrial workers rose in the 1950s, work rules and production processes in factories became more rigid. The division of labor within the factories reflected the social division of labor in society as a whole. Graduates from universities and technical schools designed the products, developed the technology, and determined the labor process. Cadres managed the shops and made most decisions, which were seldom challenged by the workers. Mao saw that if this were to continue, a hierarchy of power would gradually take hold, preventing the production of workers eventually from taking charge of running the factories. If workers could not be in charge of the factories, how could they be expected to be in charge of the state? When workers of the Anshan Metallurgical Combine initiated changes in the operation of their workplace in 1960, Mao took the opportunity to call on all factories to follow their new rules as guidelines for the operation of state enterprises. On March 22, 1960, he named these new rules the Ongang Constitution. Ongang is the abbreviation for Onsheng Steel and Iron. The Ongang Constitution consisted of five principles. 1. Put politics in command. 2. Strengthen party leadership. 3. Launch vigorous mass movements. 4. Systematically promote the participation of cadres in production labor and of workers in management. And 5. Reform any unreasonable rules and assure close cooperation among workers, cadres, and technicians, and energetically promote technical innovation. Before the Cultural Revolution, these guidelines did not receive enthusiastic support from the workers. While workers enjoyed benefits endowed by the state, they did not see the two-line struggle being waged within the party. As Mao advocated for more worker control in the state factories, Liu Shaoqi advocated for labor reform to take away their permanent employment status. As early as the 1950s, Liu Shaoqi began advocating for the labor contract system. An essay from the recently published Labor Contract System Handbook reveals the history of Liu's attempts to institute temporary contract workers in state-owned factories. The essay describes how, in 1956, Liu sent a team to the Soviet Union to study their labor system. Upon its return, the team proposed the adoption of the labor contract system modeled after the Soviet Union. 
However, when the changes were about to take place, the Great Leap Forward began, thus interrupting this model's implementation. Then in the early 1960s, Liu again attempted to change permanent employment status by adopting a, quote, two-track system, unquote. Enterprises would employ more temporary and fewer permanent workers, and the mines would employ peasants as temporary workers. Then in 1965, the State Council announced a new regulation on the employment of temporary workers, indicating that instead of permanent workers, more temporary workers should be hired. The regulation also gave individual enterprises the authority to use allocated wage funds to replace permanent workers with temporary workers. This time, the Cultural Revolution interrupted Liu's effort to reform the labor system, and in 1971, large numbers of temporary workers were given permanent status. After the Cultural Revolution began in 1966, and China's population engaged in changing society, the principles of Ongang were broadly propagated, widely discussed, and actually put into practice. To this day, principles in the Ongang constitution are still some of the most radical guidelines to changing industrial organization and production processes in factories. During the Cultural Revolution, other important issues were debated, including material incentives and peace wage rates. Through discussion and debate, workers saw that using material incentive to induce competition among workers only divided the workers in damaged class unity. When factory rules and regulations were openly discussed and debated, workers realized more than ever that it was up to them to change the world they lived in. That high degree of industrial democracy was what Charles Bettelheim witnessed in China's factories when he visited there in 1971. From what he observed in the factories and in society, Bettelheim wrote in the preface of his book, quote, Through discussions and struggles involving millions of workers and vast sections of the population, a new road was opened up in the struggle for socialism, unquote. Reforming the Education System Revolutionizing industrial organization in factories was one important accomplishment of the Cultural Revolution. Reforming the education system was another. During the long history of feudalism, education was reserved for the privileged few. A system of examinations evolved from this long history, designed as a way to select a few, quote, qualified, unquote, intellectuals to join the ruling class. Landlord families paid tutors to educate their sons. The sons had to study hard and then take the difficult examination. If they passed, they could become officials serving in the imperial government. This system of selection was how the landowning class linked to the ruling class. Education, as an avenue to advance in social stature, had deep roots in the thousands of years of feudalism and in the consciousness of ordinary people. The divide between mental work and physical work was similarly rooted. As Mencius famously said, quote, those who work with their brain rule, and those who work with their muscles are ruled, unquote. Modern Western-style education found its way into China in the mid-1880s through missionary schools and later through returning students educated in the United States and other Western countries. Toward the end of the Qing Dynasty, the first university was established and the examination system was abolished. After the 1911 revolution, the government adopted many aspects of modern education from the West, 
including the levels of education and the numbers of years at each level. Six years of elementary, three years of junior high, three years of high school, and four years of college. Curriculum at different levels was changed to include modern science, modern languages, social sciences, psychology, and other subjects. In the 1930s, however, only about 15% of Chinese children received elementary education, and even fewer attended high school. University education only served the extremely small ruling class in the urban areas and provided an important vehicle for obtaining wealth, fame, and power. When the People's Republic was established in 1949, the literacy rate was about 20%. The focus of education in the early years of the new government was to quickly increase the population's literacy through formal schooling, as well as through literacy campaigns and establishing informal schools that taught people how to read and write. Between 1949 and 1965, elementary school enrollment more than tripled from 45 million to 160 million. Secondary school enrollment increased 8.5 times from 2.3 million to 19.7 million, and college enrollment increased 4.3 times from 230,000 to 930,000. Curriculum at different levels went through major revisions. Western influence was largely replaced by Soviet influence. Education in urban areas was basically free of charge. College students no longer had to pay tuition and were also given monthly stipends to cover their living expenses. In this sense, education was no longer limited to those who could afford to pay and was expanded to include young people from other segments of society. The basic philosophy of education, however, remained largely unchanged and continued to follow in the old tradition. Although schools expanded at all levels during the first 16 years of the New Republic, there was a strong bias in favor of the urban population at the expense of the rural. Even in urban areas, children of worker families were at a disadvantage, although cost was no longer a barrier for them to attend school. In the 1950s and 60s, schools at different levels used test scores to judge student performances, and admission to high school and college was based on the entrance examination scores. Quote, key schools, unquote, were set up to attract students with the best scores and a tracking system within them, very much like the tracking system in U.S. schools, further differentiated their futures. Placement in the upper tracks of, quote, key high schools, unquote, almost guaranteed a place in the best universities by enabling them to achieve high scores on the entrance examination. The, quote, key schools, unquote, had more resources, better trained teachers, and better facilities. This system of competition, based on book learning, strongly favored students from intellectual families, which had more books and parents who were better equipped to help their kids raise their exam scores. While children from worker families were at a disadvantage, children of peasant families had even more limited chances to attend high school. All of the barriers to enter university were almost insurmountable. Both feudalism and capitalism used the surplus created by workers and peasants to educate elites who turn around to rule them. If socialism continued that familiar pattern, where would future leaders of the working class come from? The admissions process and standards no longer met the needs of the new society, and neither did the curriculum. 
there was too much book learning, which often imparted outdated and irrelevant knowledge that did not meet the urgent needs of China's rapid industrial and agricultural development. Even though Mao was well-versed in the ancient forms of the Chinese language, he always thought education in its traditional form stifled young people's curiosity and imagination and provided no useful knowledge. He had dropped out of school a few times in his youth and studied on his own to acquire a wealth of knowledge in breadth and depth unmatched by known scholars. Thus, Mao had a bias against the kind of formal education taught in regular institutions and saw education reform as a key to success of building a new socialist society. Not only so that young people could acquire useful knowledge for developing the economy, but also to bridge the divide between mental and physical work. However, in the institutes of higher learning, school administrations and faculties considered curriculum matters their prerogative, a role that was not to be challenged by anyone. During the Cultural Revolution, several basic questions confronted education reform. First, who should be admitted to schools of higher learning? Second, what should be taught in these schools and how should book learning be connected to practice? And third, how could education be expanded to include more young people in the countryside? There was also the question of learning beyond classrooms and whether the length of formal education at different levels should be shortened. Education reform generated great enthusiasm among young Red Guards during the Cultural Revolution. Schools were suspended so that young people could play a critical role in changing the education system. Education reform provoked an uproar in institutions of higher learning. After three years of intense struggle, admission processes and standards were changed and written entrance examinations were abolished. After high school graduation, young people worked in either factories or on farms, and their work units decided who should be sent to school for further study. Additionally, a large number of high school graduates in cities were sent to the countryside to learn how to work and learn from working in production. Curriculums were revised to better fit the needs of society. Physical labor was incorporated into the curriculum as an integral part of learning. University faculty in science and engineering started going to factories to see how to make a better connection between what they were teaching and what was needed for industrial development. While faculty in agricultural sciences went to the communes to help peasants improve planting methods and soil conditions and develop new seeds and control pests. Despite the continuous lies told by the capitalist reformers about the quote, 10-year loss, unquote, in China's higher education, there were very significant achievements in both science and technology. These achievements laid the foundation for further development in the post-socialist years. More importantly, education reform during the Cultural Revolution disseminated scientific knowledge to the broad masses of people, the workers and the peasants. The American Rural Small-Scale Industry Delegation that visited China's small-scale rural industries in 1972 witnessed the confidence and the pride of the peasant workers who mastered the technology of machine-making in their workshops. In Chapter 10, Expanding Knowledge and Attitude, the delegation report included the following about the meaning of being, quote, read and expert, unquote. In the stereotype, the experts want large-scale urban enterprises, full of the most advanced technology and imported machinery. The perfect, quote, read, unquote, is, of course, the antithesis of this, one with the masses, 
confident in their ability and their methods, unintimidated by the presumed superiority of the technological mandarins and their foreign mentors. Central to the resolution of this contradiction is technological assimilation and accessibility, technologies which are felt to belong naturally to one's immediate environment, not as wonderful and exotic phenomena, and technologies which are capable of being thoroughly understood and mastered by those at all levels who work with them. Quote, most of the machinery in this plant was made and installed by ourselves, unquote. Quote, our own staff and teams made up of old workers, cadres, and technicians has produced 104 innovations in the past six months, unquote. Such phrases, which we heard over and over again, bespeak an important role in assimilation and accessibility for local small-scale industry. What this delegation witnessed in the workshops of rural small industries speaks to the essence of education reform during the Cultural Revolution and its short-lived success. Propagating Proletarian Art and Culture Related to education reform, changes were made in the areas of art and culture, including literature, music, film, and theater. Before the Cultural Revolution, mainstream theater and art rarely reflected the lives and work of workers and peasants. Traditional Chinese opera continued to tell the stories of old imperial dynasties, which had little relevance to the new society. A familiar subject of traditional Chinese brush paintings was an old man sitting idly in a boat appreciating the mystic mountains, as well as brush paintings of flowers and birds. It was obvious that basic changes in arts and culture were necessary when workers, peasants, and revolutionary soldiers were the main actors in the new society. Drastic changes in all areas of art and culture took place during the Cultural Revolution. A new breed of worker and peasant artists painted vivid pictures of their lives, proudly working with shiny new machines and factories, and happily working in the fields with families during the harvest. The joy in these paintings was expressed in bold strokes and bright colors, in contrast to the old paintings of the lonely old man created with a delicate stroke in muted colors. Many people today know about the eight famous Cultural Revolution dramas portraying revolutionary heroes and heroines. Jing King was responsible for the creation of these dramas on stage and in films, creatively applying traditional and contemporary art forms including Chinese opera and Western ballet to tell revolutionary stories. There were also many different forms of music explored and developed during this period. One of the most inspiring endeavors was encouraging music and art students to travel to national minority areas to record their music and art. The Chinese Communist Party was very critical of the persistence of Han chauvinism. Since the great majority of dozens of Chinese ethnic groups were or are Han, with few exceptions, historically the Han dominated China politically, economically, and culturally. The CCP made friends with many national minorities during the Long March, and after liberation its policy toward national minorities was the most advanced in the world. After liberation, national minorities were given many political and economic privileges that the Han did not have. During the Cultural Revolution, many efforts were made to preserve languages, arts, music, and other cultural aspects of national minorities. The CCP's policies toward national minorities were the reason for peace between the Han and other minorities during the socialist period. Promoting Democracy 
the spirit of cooperation and class unity. Another crucial achievement of the Cultural Revolution was the practice of democracy at the grassroots level. The mere suggestion of democracy under socialism in China can cause controversy. Many people ask, quote, how could China have democracy when it was under the one-party rule of the Communist Party, unquote? If examined from a different perspective, however, a different picture with different questions emerges. As explained above, there were actually two headquarters within the Chinese Communist Party, the bourgeois headquarters that was actively pursuing capitalism, and the proletarian headquarters that was actively pursuing socialism. The division between the two headquarters became clearer after the 1950s. As time went on, the struggle between them became more intense. When Mao saw that the contradictions could no longer be dealt with as contradictions among the people, the dichotomy between the two headquarters could not be resolved by a voting system like the bourgeois democracy of modern capitalism, which has a two-party or multi-party system with one or more left-of-center parties and one or more right-of-center parties. The differences between or among these political parties in the West are very limited in scope because all of them have the goal of maintaining bourgeois role. Some advocate more government involvement in managing the domestic economy, and others prefer less, but their class interests are the same. Moreover, the range of foreign policy alternatives is rather narrow, focusing mostly on options of the ruling class and imperialist countries. During the Cultural Revolution, the issues between the two headquarters were fundamental, between capitalism and socialism. The proletarian headquarters was for socialism and was not afraid of the masses. It encouraged their participation in the debate. A ruling party encouraging mass participation in discussing such fundamental issues was historically unprecedented. During the Cultural Revolution, the masses practiced the four Da's, Da Min, Big Voice, Da Feng, Big Openness, Da Bianlan, Big Debate, and Da Zaibao, Big Character Posters, to exercise grassroots democracy. The government could not censor what people wanted to say because they simply wrote big character posters and pasted them on the walls in the streets or hung them from the ceilings in factories, schools, or offices. The right for people to practice the four Da's as well as the workers' rights to strike were written into the Constitution in 1975, Articles 13 and 28. This demonstrated how the proletarian headquarters stood firmly on the side of the workers and masses. These same rights were quickly eliminated in 1978, as soon as the capitalist reformers seized power, and they were all formally dropped from the Constitution in 1982. This shows how the bourgeois headquarters was afraid of the workers and masses by immediately eliminating their basic rights immediately after it seized power. The Cultural Revolution not only articulated the major differences between socialism and capitalism, it took concrete steps in advancing socialism in many spheres in Chinese society, demonstrating why the proletariat had to be in control in order to advance socialism. When the bourgeoisie seized power in 1977, it was able to reverse the course of development and dismantle the achievements made during the socialist period. It also distorted that period of history, especially the Cultural Revolution, and demonized Mao. However, the Cultural Revolution made it impossible in the long run for the bourgeoisie to keep up appearances that they were actually pursuing socialism. 
Chinese workers and peasants lived and struggled through socialism and capitalism as two distinctively different societies, and their struggles during the past 40 years of capitalist reform have enabled them to have a better and deeper understanding of the meaning of the two-line struggle in many spheres of society and the crucial issues hotly debated during the Cultural Revolution. Toward the end of the Cultural Revolution, the spirit of Dazai and Da King swept across the country. Under Chen Yanggui's leadership, peasants in Dazai worked long hours without rest in bitter weather, overcoming severe natural conditions to become self-reliant. They proved that men and women working together could move mountains. Their spirit inspired the whole country, and in the 1970s, as many as 80 million peasants participated in, quote, farmland capital construction, unquote, work each year, totaling the equivalent of 8 billion labor days in land work. As a result, Chinese peasants changed the landscape of China's countryside. They also worked cooperatively in conducting extensive and intensive scientific experiments to improve seed strains, soil conditions, and other farming methods. In Da King, when workers realized that oil was an important source of energy in China's industrialization, they devoted themselves to making innovations in order to increase oil production, many risking their lives drilling oil wells. Workers and peasants in China proved to themselves and to the world their capability to organize production and look beyond their own narrow self-interest. What they accomplished should have forever dispelled the myth that, quote, Chinese people were nothing but a pile of loose sand, unquote, and that, quote, workers and peasants were stupid, ignorant, and backward, unquote. Yet Deng and his supporters insulted them by calling them lazy because they, quote, ate from a big pot, unquote, and because they were, quote, holding an iron rice bowl, unquote, in reference to the guaranteed economic benefits for the masses in the socialist economy. The concrete experiences of China showed that socialist value has to be grounded in the socialist economic base. Question 2a and 2b explain changes in the economic base, and this question explains changes in the superstructure. Fundamental changes in both the economic base and the superstructure made China a socialist country during the period between 1956 and 1978. Question 4. What were some additional achievements made during China's socialist development? China achieved significant development in productive forces in all sectors of the economy. By relying on its own internal finances and independent technological advances, China was able to develop rapidly during the 30 years before 1978. See question 5. China's socialist development built a strong industrial base and laid the foundation for its agriculture, vastly improving the material well-being of hundreds of millions of Chinese people. It was able to develop sophisticated technology in its industrial sector and raise the level of mechanization in its agricultural sector. Between 1952 and 1978, the annual growth rate for agriculture, industry, and transport and construction averaged 3.4%, 9.4% and 10.7% respectively. Achievements in Education and Health Before liberation, China was an extremely poor and backward country. After 100 years of repeated foreign invasions and wars, 
China's economy was in ruins. Before 1949, malnutrition and outbreaks of infectious disease were the main reasons for China's high death rate. During the 1930s, China's crude death rate was 27 per 1,000. The infant mortality rate was 156 per 1,000 births for the country as a whole, and was as high as 200 per 1,000 for the peasant population. On average, one-third of all children died before the age of five. For the peasant population, life expectancy at birth was less than 30 years. These grim statistics are not surprising, considering that in 1949, only one hospital bed existed for every 24,000 rural residents, and there was no preventative medicine to speak of. China was known worldwide as the, quote, sick man of Asia, unquote. After the collectivization of agriculture, grain and other agricultural products increased steadily, with the exception of 1959 through 1961. While people's diet improved, China made rapid progress in other areas to improve people's health. Infectious diseases were eradicated by relying on the masses. Mobile medical units toured the countryside and the cities, explaining the causes of diseases and convinced people to change their sanitary conditions and personal hygiene practices in order to prevent them. Many mass campaigns were initiated to eradicate different diseases, along with mass campaigns to kill flies, mosquitoes, and other carriers of disease. People's enthusiastic participation in these campaigns showed that they wanted to take charge of changing their own conditions. In only one and a half decades after the liberation, China was able to eradicate most of the infectious diseases that had plagued its population for centuries, including cholera, diphtheria, tuberculosis, schistosomiasis, snail fever, typhoid fever, smallpox, and many others. By the end of the 1970s, even the World Bank reported that, despite China's low per capita GNP, its death rate had dropped to the level of developed countries. China's crude death dropped from 27 per 1,000 in the 1930s to 6 per 1,000 in 1979, and during the same period, its infant mortality rate dropped from 156 per 1,000 births to 56. Life expectancy at birth doubled within one generation. In the 1940s, about 80% of the Chinese population was illiterate. The Chinese Communist Party launched a literacy campaign in the liberated areas even before 1949. After liberation, the campaign proceeded at full speed. In the meantime, the number of schools expanded rapidly, and by the mid-1960s, about 70% of all primary school-aged children and 16% in the secondary school-age group were enrolled in schools. China's accomplishment in health and education far exceeded advanced capitalist countries in their early stage of industrialization because China's socialist development made satisfying human needs instead of expanded capital accumulation the goal of its development. Achievements in the modernization of agricultural production, socialist approach to developing science and technology. After the commune system was established, the communes and brigades set up as many as 40,000 agricultural technological expansion and improvement stations with the help of the central government. 
a four-level research network, county, commune, brigade, and team, covered the breadth of rural areas, greatly raising the level of technology for agricultural production by improving seed strains, controlling plant diseases, and the use of both organic and chemical fertilizers to improve soil conditions toward increased production. According to Thomas B. Wines, an agricultural specialist, China's work on hybridization in the early 1950s achieved great results in new dwarf rice varieties and hybrid maize. Wines explained how the seed-selecting system of this research network was able to achieve the period from breeding to full-scale production in the shortest time possible. This demonstrated the superiority of having a network structure under the commune over commercial for-profit seed companies to improve agricultural technology. The Great Leap Forward in 1958-59 through 59 aroused peasant enthusiasm to industrialize the countryside. By the mid-1960s, when agricultural production was stabilized, small-scale industries were set up by production brigades and communes. These small industries produced tractors and other agricultural machinery and provided repair and maintenance services for increasingly mechanized agricultural production. They also produced other industrial goods such as fertilizer for farming and cement for construction, as well as consumer goods for rural residents. In 1975, Dwight Perkins, a specialist in international development and in Chinese studies, led a group of American delegates in different fields of study to visit small industries in China. They produced a comprehensive report on what they saw called Rural Small-Scale Industry in the People's Republic of China. The report gave a positive evaluation of the concrete conditions of the small-scale industries, which employed from under 50 workers to around 600 workers, and their impact. In the conclusion, the group credited the small-scale rural industries that produce cement, fertilizer, electric power, and agricultural machinery with the rapid increase in the rates of investment and transformation of Chinese agriculture. The report also credited the small-scale rural industries with raising the level of technical know-how in China's countryside. Additionally, the small-scale rural industries limited the pace of urbanization and facilitated, quote, the desire to reduce the social and economic status difference between urban and rural, industrial and agricultural sectors. The desire for greater popular participation and initiatives in the development process and the desire to spread technical capabilities throughout the rural population, unquote. As a rule, they did not use the most advanced technology, but they served the increasingly modernized agricultural sector well by using the level of technology available to them, often machinery and equipment phased out by industries in the state sector. The economic policies based on the Worker-Peasant Alliance strengthened the link between the industrial and agricultural sector, as the industrial sector developed, it supplied the agricultural sector with more and more industrial products, agricultural machinery, equipment, electric generators, and chemical fertilizer. The three-tiered ownership of the commune mobilized and organized peasants to engage in extensive work to improve the land and infrastructure in China's vast countryside. This extensive land work made the modernization of agriculture possible, Moreover, the small industries in rural areas made it possible to maintain 
and sustain the new modernized agriculture. These accomplishments can be summarized in the table below. Modernization of agriculture. Tractor plowed area as a percentage of cultivated area, 1952, 0.1, 1957, 2.4, 1965, 15, 1979, 42.4. Irrigation area as a percentage of cultivated area, 1952, 18.5, 1957, 24.4, 1965, 31.9, Small hydropower stations in rural areas, 1952-98, not available, 83,224. Generating capacity in thousands of kilowatts, 1952-8, 1957-20, 1965, not available. 1979, 276.3. Total horsepower of agricultural machinery. 1952, 25. 1957, 165. 1965, 1,494. 1979, 18,191. Large and medium-sized tractors in thousands. 1952, 1.3, 1957, 14.7, 1965, 72.6, 1979, 666.8. Small and walking tractors in thousands. 1952, not available. 1957, not available. 1965, 4. 1979, 1,671. Motors for Agricultural Drainage and Irrigation, 1952, 12.8, 1957, 56.4, 1965, 907.4, 1979, 7,122.1. Combined Harvesters, 1952, 284, 1957, 1,789, 1965, 6,704, 1979, 23,265. Motor fishing boats, 1952, not available. 1957, 1,485. 1965, 7,789. 1979, 52,225. China's socialist development was an astounding success. In merely 20 years, Chinese workers, peasants, and intellectuals under party leadership 
not only built a solid foundation for China's industries and agriculture and paved the way for further development, they also immensely improved the standard of living for a large and growing population. For the first time in China's long history, the working people had their basic needs, food, clean water, health care, education, and adequate housing, met and were credited with being creators of wealth. They received the highest respect and dignity in the history of humankind. Again, how can anyone say that socialism in China failed? The Great Leap Forward for Women, Holding Up Half the Sky Under party leadership, China's workers and peasants together changed the world around them, turned the old feudal order on its head. In the process, they also transformed themselves in their relationship with nature and with one another, including gender relationships between men and women. Moreover, the CCP consciously and consistently pushed policies and sustained efforts aimed at equality between women and men. This was based on the firm belief that a society could not be liberated from the shackles of old ideas and old practices without the liberation of women. In other words, in a new socialist society, women's emancipation must proceed together with continuing class struggle for full emancipation from all forms of oppression. The massive campaign to eradicate illiteracy meant setting up classes in the countryside and cities and teaching ordinary peasants and workers to read and write. These literacy classes were especially instrumental to the liberation of women because, once women learned to read and write, they started reading newspapers, documents, and other printed matter, sharing information among themselves, and communicating with the outside world. Their surroundings expanded from a narrow focus on their own families to a broader perspective that included their communities, the nation as a whole, and even the world. Classes organized to eradicate illiteracy later evolved into political study groups, where they learned and discussed national and international news and debated government policies. As described above, the health of people improved dramatically from a better diet, health care, and personal hygiene. This benefited the population in general, and women in particular, because women had suffered disproportionately from health issues due to diseases related to childbirth and have been the caretakers for sick family members. In the 1950s, as China's industrialization took off and factories in both heavy and light industries sprouted up, both male and female industrial workers grew in number and their status rose. In urban areas where most factories were state-owned, both male and female workers received adequate wages, equal pay for equal work, and lifelong job and benefit guarantees from the state. Although wages of factory workers were not high, their cost of living was kept low due to housing and utilities subsidies and free medical care for workers with a small monthly payment to cover their families. The workplace also provided free childcare. Moreover, women workers received additional benefits including being assigned lighter work during pregnancy, 56 days paid maternity leave, and longer breaks for new mothers to nurse their newborns in nearby nurseries. Workers also had the option to eat in the factory canteen, which only charged for the cost of food but not the cost of meal preparations, liberating women from the domestic work in their kitchens. Women workers retired at the age of 50, and men retired at the age of 55, with pensions that equaled 70% of their wages, plus full benefits. After land reform, 
the collectivization of agriculture in the mid-1950s was another important step forward in raising the status of women. During the stage of advanced cooperatives, all land and other productive tools were collectively owned by the cooperatives. Individual households no longer had control over the means of production. At the same time, women began to earn work points from participating in production. As a result, the material base for patriarchy, male domination, a persistent legacy of many centuries of feudalism, gradually disappeared. After the communes were formed, work points women earned were recorded in their own names instead of the names of their families. This meant that women were treated as individual workers in the production teams and they, not their families, received the cash or grain they earned from the accumulated work points. That was the first time peasant women could show the worth of their productive work. With the cash and grain they took home, their status and their families rose almost immediately. During the stage of elementary co-op in Zhigao, a small village in Shanxi province, a woman co-op leader, Shen Jilan, found a way to motivate women in the village to join production. Shen saw the importance of women in the drive to increase production, because in Zhigao, there were 22 male productive members and 24 potential female productive members. Female members were reluctant to join production because the work points they earned had been recorded in their husbands' names. Shen persuaded them to join production by making a change so the work points they earned would be recorded in their own names. Soon they joined and formed an all-woman team. These women showed tremendous enthusiasm and produced impressive amounts of output. Later, Shen persuaded the party leader to send the women's team to learn new skills. Upon their return, the all-women's team produced as much output as the men's team. Shen then led them to struggle for equal pay for equal work and won. They became the first to receive the same number of work points for a day's work of that of men's. Not many women received the same work points as men because more points were given to a day's work that required heavier physical labor traditionally assigned to men. However, gradually, when machines began to replace human labor, the required physical strength to perform different tasks became less important, thus helping narrow the gap in work points between men and women. Question 5. What was China's socialist development strategy? How was China's socialist development different from colonial and semi-colonial countries pursuing capitalist development? When compared with the experiences of countless other colonial and semi-colonial countries, socialist China was able to successfully develop its economy where others failed. The most important reason for China's success was that it went through a socialist revolution and pursued socialist development under the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. China's socialist development made it possible for it to be independent from the interference and exploitation of imperialist countries. The CCP under Mao Zedong built a strong alliance between workers and peasants and adopted a self-reliant development strategy based on this alliance. Today in most colonial and semi-colonial countries, agriculture can no longer sustain the rural population, so peasants leave the land and migrate to nearby cities. In cities independent industrialization has failed and export manufacturing provides some low-wage jobs but unemployment and poverty persists in most countries. 
Peasants who migrate from the countryside often live in deplorable conditions with no clean water, basic food, or medical care in extremely poor sanitary conditions. Children living in the slums receive no education and often resort to rummaging through garbage dumps to find a few items to sell or some scraps of food to eat. We need to ask why the differences between the lives of workers and peasants in socialist China and those in colonial and semi-colonial countries are so stark. This section strives to provide some answers. The most distinguishing character of China's socialist development was that it eliminated exploitation both internally and externally. All societies since the end of primitive communism have produced surplus, which is the amount of products produced above a given society's current consumption. Historically, surplus produced by society was used to build religious temples, palaces for kings and queens while they lived, and fancy mausoleums after they died. Surplus also was and is used for military conquest and to support the luxurious lives of the rich and powerful. Under feudalism, surplus took the form of in-kind rent payment. Under capitalism, surplus has taken the form of profit for capitalists who can use it for expanded capital accumulation, for military expansion, and to pay for their material comforts. Surplus also takes the form of interest in rent. All forms of exploitation squeeze surplus from the working masses. Under capitalism, it is the capitalist prerogative to decide whether to use the surplus for further capital expansion or for extravagant consumption. The working people who produce the surplus have no right to say how surplus is to be used. When a socialist country eliminates exploitation, surplus can be invested in producing useful products and services for the working people. China had no internal exploitation because socialism eliminated the payment of profit, rent, and interest. This was possible because the state sector phased out commodity production and labor as a commodity. In the collective sector, after the formation of advanced co-ops, capital, farm tools, see strong shares from total output. Moreover, in both the state sector and the collective sector, Great efforts were made to avoid layers of bureaucracy, doing only administrative and non-productive work. Once exploitation was eliminated, all of the surplus produced in the society could be invested in machinery and equipment to improve the land and to build infrastructure in order to expand future production. Equally important, in socialist China, surplus was not squeezed excessively from the workers and peasants, so that significant improvements were made in their standard of living. As stated above, production team leaders continue doing farm work as part of their team. Most brigade leaders and those who carried out work in the communes were very conscientious about doing their best work. Every year when the harvest was complete, they faced criticism from their members and engaged in self-criticism. Great attention was paid to whether leaders took anything that belonged to the collectives for personal use. The leaders shouldered huge responsibilities with very little material reward. They did not exploit their members. Perhaps even more important, during China's socialist development, there was no external exploitation, which meant that no surplus was siphoned out of the country. In most colonial and semi-colonial countries, in addition to the exploitation of domestic landlords, capitalists, money lenders, 
and bureaucrats, surpluses taken out of the country and profits for foreign monopoly capital and or interest to foreign banks and international financial institutions, such as the International Monetary Fund. Under the Worker-Peasant Alliance, China's socialist development adopted a self-reliant development strategy so that surplus created by the Chinese laboring class stayed in China to develop its industries and agriculture. What were the main factors in China's self-reliant economic development? Why is self-reliant development only possible under socialism? The two major dimensions of self-reliant development strategy. The first dimension of self-reliance is an economic development that relies on internal financing. In this world dominated by imperialism, less developed countries must mobilize their own resources for development. Quote, experts, unquote, in developmental economics created the myth that a poor country has to rely on external finance to develop. However, this myth has been shattered by what we experienced in the past several decades. The reality is that by relying on foreign investment and or foreign loans, less developed countries lost many more resources than the very little they gained. They are much worse off after several decades of, quote, development, unquote. By relying on external finance, colonial and semi-colonial countries ended up owing huge debts to international monopoly capital and international financial institutions. International financial institutions dominated by monopoly capital and imperialist nations have used debts as an instrument to force structural adjustment programs, or SAP, onto debtors. Through SAPs, these powerful outside forces have been able to dictate their internal economic and political affairs. Countries that have been placed under SAPs lose their autonomy to decide how to use their own resources to produce food and other necessities for their own people. Under SAPs, productive resources shift from domestic consumption to produce export commodities in order to earn foreign exchange to pay interest on debt they owe. Meeting the interest payment for their ever-growing debt becomes the only objective for, quote, development, unquote. People's basic needs are completely absent from any, quote, development, unquote, program. Moreover, with the help of international trade and financial institutions, imperialist countries use this debt trap as a vehicle to shift the burden of economic crisis to debtor countries. The result has been that large foreign multinationals have taken over many sectors of their economies, including manufacturing, communication, and transportation, as well as finance and banking. The second dimension of self-reliance in China's socialist development is reliance on its own technology. Mao saw the importance of technology in economic development, but he often explained in his talks and writings that in order for a poor country like China to catch up with the West, China had to rely on its own technological development. He used an easily understood analogy to describe China's technological needs. It must, quote, walk on two legs, unquote. One leg was adopting advanced up-to-date technology from the West when it was appropriate, by critically evaluating how such technology would fit into its own development needs. However, a country like China could not just walk on this one leg. The other leg was the utilization of all the different levels of technology, traditional and indigenous, 
as well as developing its own modern technology. The ability to utilize different levels of technology, the more advanced new technology and the dated old technology, for development in order to make use of all available and scarce machinery and equipment is only possible under socialism. As explained in question 4, the small-scale rural industries often did not use the most advanced technology, but they were able to serve the increasingly modernized agricultural sector by using the level of technology available to them. Often machinery and equipment phased out by industries in the state sector. This is a good example of the, quote, walking on two legs, unquote, development strategy. In capitalist development, older and less, quote, efficient, unquote, technology is driven out of the market and scrapped by the newer and more, quote, efficient, unquote, ones, essential to, quote, planned obsolescence, unquote, or, quote, creative destruction, unquote. It is worthwhile to have a short discussion here on countries developing their own technology. For a semi-colonial country developing its own technology is not simply a technical question. It involves a significant shift in ideology. At the time of liberation, China had been under foreign dominance for more than 100 years. Foreign countries from the West repeatedly defeated China by using their superior weaponry and sophisticated technology. It was no wonder that Chinese people in general, and Chinese intellectuals in particular, regarded the superiority of foreign technology as absolute and believed that China could never catch up. This defeatist attitude had to be overcome. China was able to develop its own science and technology by painstakingly building a solid foundation from the basics, including writing its own basic textbooks on science and technology instead of directly translating foreign copies. Making advancements in their own technology was proven possible during the socialist transition because the ideology changed, leading people to believe that they had the ability. Also, unlike other developing countries, there was no brain drain from China during the socialist years. For many decades, Year after year of unremitting brain drain from developing countries, including China once socialism ended, to the Western countries, has occurred with university-educated young people, as well as well-known scientists leaving their own countries to work in Western academies and high-tech industries. In fact, the brain drain has been much more serious than what is seen by the steady emigration of intellectuals because scientists in semi-colonial countries are incentivized to pursue research subjects, not according to the development needs of their own countries, but according to whether their results are publishable in international academic journals. The loss of resources from brain drain is as serious as the draining of natural and financial resources from these countries. An economic model based on self-reliance made it possible for China to develop its economy during the socialist transition, to better the lives of its people, and to consolidate the alliance between workers and peasants. China did receive financial and technological aid from the former Soviet Union in the 1950s. Soviet aid, given in the spirit of helping another socialist state, had a very positive impact on China's heavy industry development. However, the Soviet Union withdrew all of its technical personnel and left many projects unfinished in 1960 after the Chinese Communist Party criticized the Communist Party of the Soviet Union 
for its revisionist path after its 20th Congress in 1956. The Soviet Union also demanded immediate repayment of all China's debt. China learned the importance of self-reliance from this experience. It is also necessary to point out that self-reliant development does not mean that a country has to totally rely on itself without trade with other nations. China always maintained that it welcomed foreign trade as long as it benefited both trading partners and was carried out on a basis of equal treatment. For many years, however, China was not able to trade with many countries because of a United States-imposed trade embargo. Under the self-reliance model, China did import technology from advanced capitalist countries. Alexander Eckstein wrote, quote, Complete plant imports from Japan, Western Europe, and to some extent the United States, are making a major contribution to the expansion of production capacity in the chemical fertilizer, petrochemical, and iron and steel industries, as well as in power generation and commercial aviation in the 1970s." Unquote. China benefited from select technology imports because it was able to use them not to substitute for its own technology, but to replicate them. After a foreign-designed complete plant was imported and built, China was able to build a copy in a fairly short time. John G. Gurley, another expert on Chinese economy, said, quote, In the 1960s, China purchased four complete nitrogenous fertilizer plants from the Netherlands, Britain, and Italy, which were installed in 1966. It began building its own fertilizer plants in 1964, and around this time set a goal of one large-scale plant for each of the country's 180 through 190 districts and one smaller plant for each of the more than 2,000 countries. In fact, much of the increased production of chemical fertilizers in the 1960s came from the medium and small-scale plants that were constructed throughout the countryside during the decade, unquote. Gurley added that China continued to import fertilizer from abroad as well. The small-scale plants he was referring to were those owned and operated by communes and production brigades. Developing socialism in a country such as China, where the productive forces were low, had some difficulties and challenges. This will be further explored in Question 6. Yet, despite these difficulties and challenges, China succeeded. The overwhelming majority of less developed countries bought into the lie that they must rely on technology imported from advanced capitalist countries. However, once a country becomes dependent on imported technology, it must then adopt and accept the logic of capital and the way capital defines efficiency. If we follow the logic of capital, efficiency is achieved when half of the workers are laid off and the remaining half work 80 hours a week. Self-reliance in technology is critically important and closely related to self-reliance in internal finance. When we contrast the self-reliant development strategy with the one relying on external finance and imported technology, the difference is clear. When a country becomes heavily indebted to international monopoly capital and international financial institutions, it has to forego all other development objectives and use whatever means necessary to increase its exports to pay interest on its debt. However, when a country's production is concentrating on exporting either agricultural products or industrial products, it must also use advanced technology 
that is controlled by monopoly capital. Since China adopted capitalist development, it has phased out almost all of the older capital equipment in its entire textile industry. It had to import the newest technology in textiles in order to make products that could compete with Taiwan, South Korea, and many other countries in the international textile and clothing market. As many textile factories closed down and tens of thousands of workers lost their jobs, China's textile industry became dependent on export markets and imported technology, all of which are tightly controlled by international monopoly capital. China's self-reliant strategy of development has proven that when a country is free of foreign and domestic exploitation, hardworking people can use the surplus they generate and the resources of its own country to develop the economy for the satisfaction of the current and future needs of its people and country. Imperialist propaganda wants us to believe that backward countries need financial resources and technology from advanced countries in order to develop. The success of China's self-reliant development proved that this propaganda was a myth created by the imperialist countries so that they could latch onto less developed but resource-rich countries and extract every bit of surplus from them. In this era of imperialism, imperialist countries depend on colonial and semi-colonial countries to expand their capital accumulation, so they turn the truth upside down to create that myth. The Class Basis of China's Self-Reliant Development The class basis of China's self-reliant development strategy was the Worker-Peasant Alliance. Under the Worker-Peasant Alliance, the state supported the agricultural sector's development. In the beginning stage of economic development in any society, where there is little or no industry, surplus for development can only come from the agricultural sector. This means that the surplus needed to build industries has to be transferred from the agricultural sector to the industrial sector. China under socialism was no exception. The difference, however, is that in most colonial and semi-colonial countries, the agricultural sector does not get replenished after industry begins to develop. By pursuing the worker-peasant alliance, the socialist state in China continuously replenished the agricultural sector with industrial products, such as chemical fertilizer and pesticides, and agricultural machinery, such as tractors, threshers, harvesters, and equipment for power stations and irrigation systems. This was accomplished by state investment in agricultural input industries and by pricing their products low enough so the communes could afford to buy them. The state also invested in infrastructure like large irrigation projects, such as the famous Red Canal, which spans several provinces. The worker state in China consciously and deliberately aimed to balance development between industry and agriculture, thus narrowing the standard of living gap between people in cities and the countryside. This was done by adjusting the price ratio between agricultural and industrial products in favor of the agricultural sector, by lowering the relative share of taxes paid by the agricultural sector, by increased state investment in large agricultural infrastructure and agricultural machine-slash-equipment industries, and by direct state grants to the collective sector. One example of a direct state grant was for education. The communes used state funds to build schools and pay teachers' wages. The state also mobilized intellectuals in cities such as educators, agricultural experts, 
and medical personnel to work in the countryside to raise the medical, educational, and cultural level for people living in rural areas. As stated earlier, China went through a socialist revolution while other colonial and semi-colonial countries did not. China's socialist revolution, led by the Chinese Communist Party, was based on a very close alliance between workers and peasants. During the revolution, the CCP formed a broad coalition with the national bourgeoisie on the basis of the worker-peasant alliance. Even before the final victory of the Liberation War in 1949, land reform had already begun in the liberated areas and continued all over the countryside after liberation. To this day, many colonial and semi-colonial countries have not yet gone through genuine land reform. As explained in Question 1, the national bourgeoisie in many colonial and semi-colonial countries are too weak to carry out land reform against the landowning class. In the world of imperialism, only the working class in these countries is able to lead a new democratic revolution to complete land reform and bring feudalism to an end. The socialist revolution based on the worker-peasant alliance is the only way to end feudalism in the world of imperialism. However, in China, carrying out genuine land reform and ending feudalism would not have accomplished much unless the worker-peasant alliance continued to be at the foundation of charting the path for future development. Land reform alone could not have resolved the problems of backwardness and poverty in China's countryside. As noted earlier, Polarization in China's countryside became significant not long after land reform. Without the collectivization of agriculture, polarization would have developed further and it would have not taken long for the land to be concentrated in the hands of new rich peasants. Rich peasants with enough land and farm tools could have hired laborers to work for them and then produced and sold their surplus grain using the proceeds to buy more land. A polarized countryside would have weakened or even destroyed the worker-peasant alliance because workers would have been faced with a divided peasantry, and a polarized countryside would have promoted the class alliance between the rich peasants and grain merchants in the cities. After the revolution, the proletariat, represented by the Chinese Communist Party, led socialist development by pursuing the close worker-peasant class alliance strategy which made it possible to defend the class interests of the working people against potential domestic and foreign exploitation. This class alliance made it possible for China to succeed in the socialist self-reliant development strategy. Only after the collectivization of agriculture was it possible to build an economic relationship between the state-owned industrial sector and the collective-owned agricultural sector. The exchange between the communes and the state was the material basis for the worker-peasant alliance. The worker-peasant alliance class strategy was the basis for the success of its socialist development. Imperialist countries deliberately prevent colonial and semi-colonial countries from developing their economies independently in order to achieve self-sufficiency in food and other basic necessities. Examining post-World War II history, we find the bourgeoisie in many colonial and semi-colonial countries had hoped to develop capitalism independently from the imperialist countries. However, sooner or later, the bourgeoisie invariably found cooperation with foreign capital too attractive to their own class interest to refuse such opportunity. 
This has become increasingly the case in the era of neoliberalism. Since the end of the 1970s, neoliberal strategy has further broken down the barriers for capital to expand across national borders. The result is that the production of all countries is more closely connected with the global market, where the law of value has become applicable across national borders. Many colonial and semi-colonial countries, which had long concentrated on agricultural exports, now use more of their natural resources to meet export demands. Mexican farmers produce fruits and vegetables to export to the United States. Chilean fishermen catch fish for Purina to make cat food for imperialist countries. Colombian farmers concentrate on exporting flowers to beautify homes of petite bourgeois families in Europe and North America. Brazilian ranchers clear the natural forest to raise cattle to feed the hamburger industry in rich countries, and the list goes on and on. The other side of the story is that people in these countries have become dependent on imports for their basic needs. Under NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, large-scale U.S. government-subsidized corn flooded Mexico and wiped out Mexican corn producers and the indigenous seeds used for cultivation by many generations of peasants. During China's War of Liberation, Mao saw that the interests of the national bourgeoisie were squeezed by foreign capital and that they did not have a future in China taken over by imperialists. Thus, it was possible for them to play a positive role in the revolution. The national bourgeoisie agreed to be part of this broad coalition, even though they understood the goal of the revolution was socialism, which meant that eventually their class would be eliminated. The national bourgeoisie in colonial and semi-colonial countries wanted to develop capitalism independent of imperialist powers. Therefore, they were a positive force in anti-imperialist struggles. They were called, quote, national bourgeoisie, unquote, to distinguish them from the bourgeoisie that were closely connected with the foreign capital, also called, quote, compradors, unquote. Quote, national, unquote, meant that they could play a positive role in the national liberation movement and had a progressive meaning. In the early part of the post-World War II era, the national bourgeoisie led and joined national liberation movements in many parts of the world. As described earlier, independent capitalist development pursued by the national bourgeoisie failed completely in the 1980s. In the neoliberal era, the bourgeoisie in colonial and semi-colonial countries today play a rather different role when compared with the past. When production and exchange in these countries became so closely connected to the monopoly capital in imperialist countries, it created the opportunity for the bourgeoisie to work closely with the global monopoly capital of the imperialist countries. The bourgeoisie that work closely with foreign monopoly capital have been rewarded handsomely. For this reason, I am not so sure they should still be called, quote, national bourgeoisie, unquote. With fewer and fewer exceptions, the bourgeoisie class in semi-colonial countries today sells the interests of their own country to monopoly capital to enrich themselves. They do not do anything that promotes the interests of their own country. Therefore, in the anti-imperialist movement, should the workers and peasants who lead the struggle continue to form a coalition with the bourgeoisie? Or should the bourgeoisie be a target in the fight against imperialism? 
Mao's worker-peasant alliance strategy for liberation has stood the test of time. It is still the only class strategy in the colonial and semi-colonial world where the majority of the working people are peasants. However, should Mao's strategy of forming coalitions with the bourgeoisie be modified in the neoliberal phase of imperialism? The nature of bourgeoisie in today's colonial and semi-colonial countries is a question today's revolutionaries need to consider carefully.